Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, Seven Sage consultants David Busis, Sling Steelman, and Megan Benaki talk about LLM emissions. Megan and Celine, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about LLMs. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I wonder if we can start by just learning more about you and what you did at Cardozo. Celine, do you want to start? Sure. So while I was at Cardozo, I worked in the admissions office where I reviewed both JD and LLM applications. For the LLM program, I was the director of LLM admissions, so I was responsible for marketing, recruiting, evaluating, and making final decisions for LLM applications, as well as making scholarship decisions and coordinating with other members of the admissions committee to review applications. I was there for 14 years, and at Cardozo, we brought in every year two LLM classes, both in January and August. So we had a shortened cycle, and I was reviewing applications year-round. What about you, Megan? I spent about eight years in the admissions office at Cardozo. I actually started my career focusing on LLM admissions. I was the primary admission officer for the LLM program for the fall 2008 cycle. I was actually filling in for Celine for an extended period. And then when she came back, I remained on the admission committee for LLM applications. I was mainly focusing on JD applications uh, for the rest of my time at Cardozo, but I did remain on the LLM committee. And I also remained a contact for prospective LLM students that came into the office or that contacted the office. I counseled hundreds of prospective LLM students. Thanks. Okay, so I want to start with a really basic question. What the heck is an LLM? Celine, can you help me out here? Sure. The LLM stands for Legum Magister, which is a one-year postgraduate academic degree typically earned by candidates who already hold a first degree in law or a professional law degree or have passed the bar exam in their home country. So that means that whoever wants to apply for an LLM degree already is either working in some judicial capacity or as a lawyer or holds an LLB or a JD or a Bachelor of Laws degree. I see. And Megan, what does the LLM admissions process consist of? What does the applicant typically have to do? The applicant will need to submit, of course, an application form for the schools they're applying to. Um, They'll also need their transcripts. You'll need both your law school transcripts and your undergrad or university level transcripts, uh, as well as a resume or CV, a personal statement, letters of recommendation. And then depending on the school's requirements, some international applicants will have to submit a TOEFL or results of another English language test. And Megan, can you give us some sense of how competitive it is? You know, it'll, it'll vary greatly by school. And so it's difficult to generalize. Uh, because LLM applicants have already attended law school, law school grades are you know, going to be important. And so the more competitive LLM programs are certainly looking to enroll uh, students who have stellar law school academic records. 
but you'll also see students who are admitted because they have strong work experience, you know, maybe they've had careers in other countries, or there might be domestic students who have worked for, you know, a number of years in the U.S. and then are returning to get a degree so that they can specialize further. But it's, it's difficult to, I think, just sort of give a blanket statement about how competitive the process is overall. I understand. Is it usually the case that your law school grades are the most important component? I think so. I think that things there, there are things in the application that can certainly make up for a weaker transcript. Um, and I mean, I've certainly seen that happen um, in my own experience. You know, I've, I've seen applicants who maybe didn't do so well in law school, and that's exactly why they're seeking the degree, because they want uh, another year at law school to sort of, you know, clear up their transcript and they can, you know, with another year of law school can get some better grades and, and look more appealing to employers after they've had uh, a more successful year at school. But if an applicant has, for example, like a very strong statement of purpose or strong letters of recommendation, or even just a very strong interest in a particular area of law, they can, they can certainly overcome a weaker law school transcript. Celine, in JD admissions, we know that admissions officers, among other things, are trying to admit a balanced class, a class that's diverse, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but in terms of geography, um, experience, intellectual thought patterns, etc. Is that the case with LLM admissions as well? I think it depends on the priorities of the particular law school for that LLM program. And different law schools may have different types of LLM programs that admit different types of candidates. For example, there is a very prestigious law school that has basically the the number one tax LLM program in the whole country. And for any person who wants to be a tax expert, it's sort of understood that you need to get that LLM. And so, you know, that would be an example of a program where you would have to be firing on all cylinders to be competitive because uh, they just get so many candidates. And what that LLM class looks like, I think, I, I think it, it it sort of depends on who's applying that year and you know who has the best application. I think certain programs may have an abundance of candidates from a particular uh, region of the world or of the country because of the nature of the relationship that admissions office and that LLM program has with maybe a particular country or a particular feeder law school or a particular law firm that tends to funnel their associates to that LLM program. So I really think it's unique to each LLM program, the makeup of uh, their incoming class. I think because there are over 170 LLM programs that are offering degrees out there, that candidates have a lot of choice. And so uh, admissions offices like to uh, have some pipelines that they can sort of tap into year after year. And so it's not unusual for a particular school to have, you know, 50% of their candidates come from a particular area or from a particular country, or, you know, have a third of their class come from a particular law school somewhere in the world. So I think it it really depends, but they are looking probably for um, a good combination of 
people who are coming straight from law school to having um, people who are fairly established professionally already because those people have a proven track record of being employable and contributing to the legal market. Tacking away from admissions for just a moment, why exactly do people get LLMs, especially if you already have a proven track record and you know that you're employable? I think there are, I mean, there are some people, especially international students, who either wish to practice in the U.S., and so they seek an LLM degree so that they're eligible to take a bar exam and then practice in the United States. And they either intend to remain there or they want to return home and they think that that will add some credibility and value to their practice, um, the fact that they have a U.S. law degree. And for domestic students, you have those students, like, for example, Celine mentioned there's a, a very prestigious tax LLM program. You have uh, students who need the degree for the area of law that they're, they're practicing in. It's just expected that they're going to have a specialized degree, although that's uncommon. I, I think it's more common that a student thinks that while the, while the degree isn't required for employability, it will make them more employable. It'll enhance their practice and enhance their prospects. You might also have someone who's been out of the workforce for a while and, you know, thinks that. And I think that this is um, a good reason to seek an LLM is to get, you know, back into the legal scene to brush up their legal skills, you know, spend a year in school, take advantage of the school program to participate in, you know, an externship, to have access to the career services office, that type of thing. Then you also have people, and I saw this at Cardozo, who um, didn't go to law school in New York City, but were hoping to break into the New York legal market. And spending a year in school in New York was a good way to do that. Adding on to that, you have international candidates who not only just want to have additional degrees on their CV, but it would help them to come to the States and complete a degree that's required to sit for a bar exam. And if they can show that they've passed the bar in a U.S. jurisdiction, it could really help them in their home country professionally. So the um, eligibility to sit for a bar exam is often a driving uh, motivator to pursue an LLM degree because you can complete the required bar exam credit requirements at the same time that you complete the LLM degree requirements. The other thing that I've seen domestic candidates use as, as reasons for pursuing an LLM degree is that perhaps they went to a law school and received a JD, but that particular law school maybe only offered one or two introductory courses in an area of law that they are now very interested in pursuing, let's say intellectual property law or arbitration. And in order to do the kind of work that they're now interested in doing, they really need to know more than just the basics. And they're looking for upper level elective courses. And they would join an LLM program in a market that they're interested in working. And that offers more um, in-depth coursework in that area of law. And so they use that year not only learning more substantive law, but also getting possibly practical experience and building a professional network, which they did not have previously. Is there evidence that getting an LLM does, in fact, make you more employable, at least in the United States? I'm not sure that if you went to an interview for a job and you sort of 
showed your LLM degree that that is going to be the thing that gets you the job. But what the LLM degree offers is additional time in a law school where you have access to information and resources that would allow you to get that job. It's easier for you to present yourself as a prospective employee, I think, if you are part of a degree program and you are within the umbrella of a law school as opposed to being an unemployed lawyer who's just hustling and sending out their resume. That makes sense. Let's turn back to the question of admissions. And I just want to know, this is a question for both of you, maybe Megan first. Mechanically, how did you read these files? I mean, did you read them on your computer? Did you read them on a Kindle? What did you read first? And how did you evaluate them? I read paper files. Everything was printed out and put into a folder. And I, because they were paper, I usually didn't transport them around. I, I read them in my office. I would usually start from the beginning. Uh, I would start with the application form, try to get a general sense of the applicant, where they were from, where they had gone to law school. Um, and I would usually then read the resume next to get a sense of their overall direction and sort of get a snapshot of their candidacy. I would then move to the transcript and take a look at how they performed first in law school and then in their university level degree. And then I'd, you'd, I'd usually read the personal statement and the letters of recommendation next. What about you, Celine? Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, so uh, in my years when I was at Cardozo, I started off with paper applications as well. And the reason why was because we would get transcripts from educational institutions from all over the world, and they'd be all different sizes, and we required original documentation. So it wasn't possible to sort of have a uniform process like the JD program. So I would have the papers all spread out on the desk, and I would start with the resume. Uh, so I would get a sense of how old they were, what their background was, where they're coming from. Then I would read the personal statement to see if they could write and to see whether English was going to be an impediment and maybe how much uh, support that they would need academically. Then I would look at the transcript to see what sort of degree they earned, what sort of law courses they were taking, if they took any English language courses, and how they did in them. And then I would read the letters of recommendation to see what sort of access they had to faculty and employers, and to see what they said, and to see you know, whether they were going to be useful at all. And then I would read the application last. <laughs> Interesting. And did all of these components have equal weight for you? I think it depends so much on each application. I think every part of the application is important, but how important each piece is will depend on the applicant. Applicants are admitted because they have different strengths. You know, there might be one person who just has such great grades and the other pieces of their application are fine. They're passable, but they don't stand out. But there is still a strong candidate because they have such a great academic record. 
You might have another candidate who didn't do very well in law school, but has a really great statement of purpose, um, you know, and now, you know, they, they found their direction. They want to specialize in intellectual property law. They've, you know, had some internships in that area during law school. And so they're admitted for that reason, because they show a lot of promise. And so I think it's hard to ever assign, you know, numerical value to each piece of the application. I would just say generally, you know, any applicant to be successful, something needs to stand out, but it's not the same thing for each applicant. Right. I think that there are many more definitions of successful LLM student than there are successful JD students. Would you agree, Megan? I would. Yeah. And how did you note a file that was successful? Again, like mechanically, physically, did you write, you know, one of four categories on it? Did you grade it from A through F? Did you log it somewhere and write must admit? Well, what I learned from speaking with colleagues is that for LLM programs and LLM admissions decisions, it varied from school to school, from admissions officer to admissions officer. It depends on how admissions is run for that school. So when I was at Cardozo, I read files many different ways. In the beginning, I had to verbally discuss and defend every decision I made to other people on the admissions committee. And then I had an evaluation sheet where I would actually type out sentences of my assessment in, you know, 12 different categories. And then there was a period where they wanted to have a more comprehensive evaluation system that was less subjective, but could be applied across the board to all the candidates. So, you know, I had to devise a system of evaluation that was somewhat numerical. And, you know, that was a way to indicate to different people on the admissions committee without having them have to read a printout evaluation and read sentences, you know, this candidate is, you know, in this category, because there is no LSAT that sort of allows someone to evaluate candidates on a single scale. And GPAs from candidates from different countries are basically meaningless. Uh, you, you know, you have some of the strongest candidates could come from UK-based schools where they don't even have GPAs. They don't even have letter grades. They have first class, second class, third class, upper, lower. How are you supposed to compare that to like a 3-4 from Shanghai University? Uh, it was really challenging. So the way that you would evaluate whether someone would be a good fit for the program and would be successful in your particular program, I think is very subjective. Can you tell us what the categories were that you were first writing sentences and then writing numbers for? Um, personal statement, professional experience, recommendations. Oh, so you're just going through each component of the application and saying, right, this is a nine out of 10 or whatever, or a 13 out of 17, whatever your system was. Something like that. Got it. And, you know, someone could say, well, how do you rate professional experience, someone who had summer internships versus someone who ran their own firm for seven years. It's an imperfect process. So it does require, you know, one person 
or a group of people to sit down and actually think about, well, you know, could they both be successful in our program? Probably yes. <laughs> Megan, is this true for you as well? Yes. Yes. I, I worked under the same systems that Celine did, so I don't have much else to add. Got it. By the way, do you see the LSAT scores of domestic applicants or any applicants? Yes. Yes. So does that figure into your decision? Because it is supposed to be predictive of JD success. I'm not sure why it wouldn't be predictive of LLM success, even though I don't know if there are any studies. Well, something to keep in mind is that now we have the law school grades. So we don't, necess we don't necessarily need a predictor of law school grades because we have them. So if someone's score is extremely low, it might give you pause. But at the same time, you can look at their law school transcript and evaluate their grades in light of, you know, how rigorous you know that program to be. And so the LSAT score, it, you know, it, like I said, it, it matters to assign it, you know, an actual weight is difficult, but it's, I would say it's, it's certainly less significant in the LLM process than it is during the JD process. Sometimes you would have international candidates who were super extra and they would provide a TOEFL as well as an LSAT score. And so maybe that LSAT would be like a, you know, maybe if you receive that LSAT score from a domestic JD candidate, you'd say, oh my. But if you have an international candidate for whom, you know, English may not be their first language, but they went ahead and took the LSAT anyway, and they achieved a certain score, that could be a point of evaluation for that candidate. So we always said, you don't have to take the LSAT. It's not a requirement for the LLM application. But if you took it, you should provide the score because it could end up being helpful. Right. I mean, the thing about the LSAT score is even though its theoretical purpose is to predict your law school grades, it is standardized and law school grades are not standardized. Correct. And the LSAT is supposed to correlate with first year performance of law school. So, you know, if you've already completed your degree and you've been working for a while and somewhat successfully, how you did on the LSAT is not going to be that important, but it is a factor. What about the other number that you might see? It's, well, it's obviously not the only other number, but I'm talking about the TOEFL score. Was the TOEFL score like a minimum hurdle that they had to clear? As in, you know, you have to score above X and then we'll consider you. Or did a higher TOEFL score correlate directly with a higher chance of getting admitted? There are suggested minimums. I think that the TOEFL, in my experience, was not entirely indicative of a person's ability to communicate. And so I have admitted people with just empirically lower TOEFL scores who did just fine. But, you know, we would definitely view candidates with very, very high TOEFL scores in a slightly different way. And then depending on the program, there are programs that say, you know, this is the minimum. If you don't have this minimum, don't apply. Or, you know, the likelihood of, and I shouldn't say don't apply, I say the likelihood of being admitted is greatly diminished if you don't meet this minimum TOEFL requirement. I see. Did you have a minimum? Our TOEFL, um, we did have a suggest, Megan, what would be the right way to say it was a suggested minimum? 
I think that's right. I think yeah, we had a suggested minimum. I think that's the right way to say it. And if yeah. someone met that minimum, we probably wouldn't need to dig any further into their English proficiency. But if they didn't, that's when we might want to interview request an additional writing sample. Exactly. That's what we would do because the point of the suggested minimum is that we don't as an admissions officer, you don't want to admit a candidate who may be very, very competent um, in their home country, in their own language, but would have difficulty uh, keeping up in an American law school setting. And we didn't want for them to be set up for failure because of language difficulties. And we didn't want you know, faculty coming to us saying, this person cannot express themselves in class or they don't understand what I am saying or other students are saying, they're not able to um, do the you know, assignments and legal writing or whatever. We didn't want to have to explain that we had let someone in. We admitted someone who um, was not capable of performing and excelling in the way that they should to get the most out of the degree. And so if they had a lower than suggested minimum TOEFL score, but I um, felt, you know, maybe this is not indicative of their potential to succeed, then I would schedule a telephone call or have invite them in for an in-person interview if they were local. And I would give them an opportunity to present another writing sample. So the personal statement is, you know, it's a personal story. They can write about whatever they want, but maybe I would give them the opportunity to write something that is more legal where they can showcase their analytical skills and their ability to write about a legal topic. And I would give them 48 hours to do that. And if they took me up on it and they presented something and I saw that if they wrote something like this in an exam, it would be somewhat sufficient, then I would reconsider their admission. And I would also have something on file to um, support the decision should anything happen in the future. I see. Let's turn to the personal statement. This might be a stupid question, but what is the purpose of a personal statement on an LLM application? I'll ask Megan first. For an LLM application, I like to see a statement of purpose because these candidates have been to law school and some of them have you know, worked after law school. And now they're applying for an advanced degree. So I want them to know why they're applying for the LLM degree, and I want them to know what they'd like to do with that degree. I, I do think that the perfect personal statement will be a mix of personal narrative and statement of purpose. I do like to learn a bit more about the candidate as a person and not just a professional or a student. But I, I do think for an LLM application, it's better to err on the side of purpose rather than personal narrative. And are you stressing LLM because you're implicitly comparing it to JD applications? I am. I am. I think, you know, I think in a JD application, those applicants haven't been to law school yet and they haven't worked as lawyers yet. They haven't had the opportunity to do so. And so my expectations are a little bit different. But I, I do think at the graduate level, um, like I said, there should be more of a focus on professional purpose. 
Celine, what makes a good LLM statement of purpose? Uh, I think a good statement of purpose is focused and it shows motivation and it shows a clear understanding of what they're hoping to achieve in the LLM degree program. It's a one-year program, which is a very, very short period of time for the candidate to you know, get what they want to get out of the school, their, their law school experience. The time really flies by. And so it's not really a degree that's going to allow you to explore very much in the way that the JD program does. They need to be coming to the program knowing what they want to get out of the program. And so, you know, if you have two pages, I would want to see that you're coming to the table as a professional or someone with some understanding of the law and you have an understanding of what this degree could offer you and what the school could offer you and how this degree will help them achieve their professional objectives. That's interesting because, you know, I wonder if that makes it hard to discern people who are going to be successful because it does seem like anybody with any level of analytical capabilities and English skills might be able to express what they're hoping to get from the LLM. I think so. What I mean is, um, what's the difference between like a, a forceful and successful expression of what you're looking for from a less successful expression of what you're looking for? Well, I think, to me, related experience always helps. So if someone's writing with an interest, again, I'll go back to intellectual property law, just because that was a popular program at Cardozo. If they had taken all of the courses that were offered at their law school, and if they had basically, you know, sought that opportunity to the fullest at their law school and then wanted to come to Cardozo, where there was pretty robust offerings, you know, that would that would sort of make sense to me. And I think that would be a stronger statement because they had they weren't just saying that they were interested in something they were showing me that they were versus someone who was writing that they were interested in a career in, you know, international human rights, but had done nothing in that area, hadn't, you know, taken any related coursework, didn't really show any academic interest in that area, that would be a weaker statement. Yes, I think that the level of sophistication with which they write about their legal experience or their interest in a certain area of law really stands out. I had a a pretty good sense of this person sounds really naive, this person sounds really young, this person sounds rather green and unexperienced versus someone who clearly had, you know, done some research, done the reading, had developed views about a certain area of law and wanted to do something about it. And so the quality of the writing was um, quite significant to me. Okay. So we know that motivation matters. We know that the quality of the writing matters to some extent. We know that professional experience matters. For LLM applications, does life experience matter? It can certainly help. I mean, I understand that people are applying under different circumstances. I, I, I would never penalize someone because they've you know gone straight from undergrad to law school to an LLM program. It's not necessarily a negative mark on their application, but I think life experience always helps. If nothing else, it gives me a certain level of comfort that 
person has had enough experience to think through their decision to enroll in an LLM program and that they'll hopefully use that year to its fullest and and maximize the opportunities that are available to them. And also just maybe approach it with, I guess this goes to someone who's had some significant work experience, but who's going to approach that year with sort of a work mentality of approaching the school hours as more of, you know, a a nine to five or, you know, nine to seven, whatever it may be. But I found often those students were successful academically. They could, you know, kind of approach school as a work day rather than spreading out their studies, you know, kind of like all night long, that sort of thing. Someone who was used to clocking in, clocking out, I think often did better in law school. Celine, can I ask you a silly hypothetical question? Sure. Okay, so I know that admissions decisions never come down or probably never come down to head-to-head comparisons. But in an imaginary world where you have one spot left and two applicants and they have the same transcript and one of them has an amazing life experience, let's say that she was a child refugee and she really bootstrapped her way through school uh, by being resourceful and innovative, but she doesn't have much work experience. And the other applicant doesn't have that kind of life experience, but they have a wealth of professional experience. They've been very successful as a lawyer. Which one of those applicants do you choose? Well, and I'm only allowed to pick one? Yeah, you're only allowed to pick one. I'm limited to one. Okay. Um, I would pick the latter, the one with the experience. The work experience. With the work experience for the LLM program. Got it. Yes, for the LLM program. But I would also say that I strongly felt, and this is just me as an admissions officer, that you know when people go for an additional degree like this, I did not feel as if it was my position to impede them in their efforts to improve themselves. If they could convince me in the application that somehow their experience at the law school and getting the degree would improve their ability to achieve their professional goals, then, you know, whether they came from a comfortable life or whether they really bootstrapped themselves, whether, you know, maybe they didn't use their time in the wisest way during their JD studies, I wouldn't really let those things keep them down. I think for me, it was really important. Forget about the past. Like, what do you want right now from this degree? How would you approach your studies? I think that that was really important to me because the way that people wanted to use the time as a law student, I thought really determined their success as a law student and as an LLM student. That makes sense. Let's turn to another major component of the application, the resume. Megan, other than just having incredible work experience, what makes a successful resume? How can you present the experience that you have in the best possible light? Formatting does matter. You know, a clean, neat resume that's sort of you know, pleasing to the eye where there's some white space for your eye to rest in between entries, I think really does help. I also think minimizing the number of bullet points for every entry is important. You know, keeping in mind this isn't a resume for employment. So the admissions officer doesn't need to know every detail of what you did at a particular job. 
but really just get a general overview and you know try to focus on the things that might be relevant for law school. So, and that's not to say that it's not valuable that someone had experience working at a job that's completely non-law related because I think just generally being out in the world working is, you know, is, is certainly helpful and you're always learning something in any job. But for example, if someone works at a job that was law related, I, I wouldn't focus so much on, you know, data entry responsibilities, but I would focus on, you know, maybe their role in, you know, attending a conference on a legal issue or organizing a conference on a legal issue, something like that. But back to my original point, I, I do think that minimizing the number of bullet points is helpful. It just, it becomes sort of tedious to pour over a huge list of responsibilities and try to discern at the end of the day, you know, what did this person even do here? So I think that's important. I think the overall length, I, I would suggest keeping to two pages. I think beyond that, an admissions officer might just get kind of frustrated wading through too much information. Did you read every word of the resumes? I could think of some candidates where I probably did for various reasons, either because I was fascinated by what they had done or because maybe they had had some errors in other parts of their application and I wanted to check their resume and see whether there were any typos. So I, I you know, I, I might for, for different reasons. But generally speaking, I probably didn't read every word and especially in those entries where there were huge list of, you know, bullets under a particular entry, I would, I would probably skim some of those. Celine, I feel like you're a resume maven. Do you have anything to add to this? <laughs> um, I found that the resume, well, as I said, it was the first thing that I read was very important to me. As I agree with Megan, formatting is very important. It's important that it's easy to read on the eyes and that if you just see too many bullets, if the type size is too small, or if there's a big chunk of text, like it would make me really irritated. The other thing is that when you have international candidates, people use CVs internationally, and it was not uncommon for someone to you know, send like a seven-page CV with a picture in the corner and like a two pages of publications or something, which is fine for the right audience. But what that would tell me is that this person didn't really give a whole lot of thought to what the application to an American law school would require. And that made me think that they really didn't put a whole lot of thought in the rest of the application if they thought it was okay to send something like this, or they wouldn't have someone read over it and give them some advice. And so whatever excellence they were trying to convey by sending something like that would be kind of lost on me. I would read the resume very carefully. And I saw that it was not only an information source for what they did and a snapshot of their candidacy, but also would give me a sense of their judgment and the care with which they approached the application and what is their view of this whole process and what kind of student would they be possibly in the future. What is the easiest way for an applicant on the resume or any other component of the application? What's the easiest way for an applicant to shoot herself in the foot? Well, typos comes to mind immediately. Those stand out. I think Maybe I shouldn't generalize, but I, I do think that most admissions officers probably become great proofreaders just with the amount of material that we read. But, uh, you know, a typo, a typo um, 
it's not going to I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like it's going to be the the basis for, you know, denial, but you know, it's certainly not going to help your case for admission. Celine, do you have any other ideas? Yeah, typos go to general sloppiness. I think mentioning the name of a different school in your personal statement, it would get you an automatic ding. Misspellings, dishonesty in the resume uh, in terms of length of employment or that sort of thing. Plagiarism. How can you check? Do you, do you try to check? I Googled a lot. Sometimes, too, we, we see boilerplate. Like, I know over the course of my career, I certainly, I, I would see, I remember this happened once or twice, seeing, you know, a very familiar piece of text. And I think that people had, you know, just Googled, like, whatever, you know, personal statement intro or whatever it was and kind of just cut and pasted something they found on Google. Yes. That's fascinating. Yes, I remember copying and pasting some really, I like good writing. And I, I remember seeing a passage, I was like, I love this writing. This doesn't go with this TOEFL score. <laughs> so I Googled it. And um, it was from, you know, someone else's writing. And then I tried to see, you know, was this the same candidate writing under a different name? What could possibly explain this connection? So because of this, I found that the time to review an application was much longer because I wanted to be sure because ultimately, you know, if someone were to say, didn't you see this? Why didn't you check this? How did you not know? I wanted to be able to say, well, I did verify through these steps. Megan, last I want to ask you about recommendations. Who should candidates ask? Should they ask the professor who's the most famous or should they ask the professor who knows them best? Always ask the professor who knows you best, because if you ask the professor simply because they're well-known and they end up writing most of the letter about their own accomplishments or maybe just spending a lot of time talking about an assignment they gave a student in the class, it's really not going to shine much light on the student's candidacy. It's always so much better to hear from someone who knows the student Always helpful if they can talk about the student, you know, coming in for office hours or talking about what the student contributed in class. That's what I want to know. I, I don't want to know that they just, you know, took a class from someone who's well known. Celine, it seems like in JD admissions, at least, most recommendations are sort of baseline superlative and end up being meh. Superlative, not as in they stand out from other recommendations. Superlative as in they use a lot of superlatives. Is that true in LLM admissions? Do most recommendations end up amounting to uh, a sort of thumbs up that doesn't actually move the needle? Okay, so I have a few things to say. JD candidates to the LLM program, meaning people who have graduated from U.S. law schools, I view their letters of recommendation a little differently than letters of recommendation from international candidates. I have found that obtaining letters of recommendation is often culturally specific, meaning that depending on maybe what country you're coming from, what constitutes a good or a successful or excellent letter of recommendation can be very different from what we expect here in the US. And so it is possible that what one candidate 
from a certain country thinks is, you know, a bomb letter of recommendation would be completely useless to me as an evaluator. Oftentimes we get letters of recommendation from the chairman of the company, from the head of the firm, from the dean of the law school, or the dean of the university. And I'm not sure what value they add. I think they add very little. Oftentimes I would see very boilerplate language, like template language. Um, sometimes they get the pronouns wrong. Uh, they would refer to him, he for a female candidate, which makes me think like they had their secretary do it. So do I blame the candidate, you know, a little bit, uh, but those letters of recommendation were pretty useless, which is a shame because it would be helpful to see what, you know, someone they had a close relationship would have to say about their potential to be a law student. I also don't know whether a close relationship between the professor or a lecturer and a law student is that possible in certain countries where, you know, you might be one out of 300 people sitting in a classroom. And so I would say the value of a letter of recommendation was different for me between an LLM candidate and a JD candidate. I think that makes sense. Do you agree with me, by the way, on um, that a lot of JD recommendations are kind of met and don't move the needle? Yes. I think really what, what stands out are the negative letters because they're so rare. So that's really going to make you stop in your tracks. And then a letter where the writer obviously really knows the applicant well, but in an academic sense, because there are letters where the writer knows the applicant well, but they're just talking about what a nice person they are. And which is, I mean, that's wonderful, but it's, it's not really what you're looking for. I mean, you're, you're hoping obviously that you're enrolling people that are going to you know, contribute to the law school in that way, but you're looking for also more than that, academic contributions. So yeah, I would agree. I think that most letters are positive, and then you'll see ones that stand out on either end of the spectrum. Okay. I think this is my last question. Celine and Megan, if you could give one piece of advice to LLM applicants, what would it be? I would say know why you're pursuing the degree. Take the time to research the degree and the schools that you're interested in and think about what you want to do afterwards. Ideally, speak to people who are working in the sorts of jobs that you would like to get eventually to understand whether you need an LLM degree to get that job or to understand whether an LLM degree would um, enhance your, um, your practice. But I, I, I do think because it's not it's, it's not a degree that's, you know, required, it is a, an additional advanced degree. I do think it's important to understand your motivations. I would say the most important thing to remember is to present a strong, clear narrative, which shows not only your motivation, but also conveys that motivation in a convincing and clear way. LLM candidates tend to be a little bit older. They've had more experience, academic, professional life experience, and it can be challenging to sort of harness all that information and distill it and present it in a way that makes sense and presents you in the best light. So to be able to take all those experiences and skills and strengths and 
present it in a way that's going to make you seem attractive to the program that you're applying to, I think is pretty important. Well, thank you both for sharing your knowledge. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Hi, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, you can reach out to us for help with your applications on sevensage.com slash admissions. See you next time.